This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as a February room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite developments, fly rods, and fishing accessories. Tech, precision, ingenuity, legacy. Go to cdfishing.us and follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Here's your host, Lauren Carnop, and this is the February Room. Well, the boss is out, and I am in. Um, Justin here, and uh, and we all know a kindred soul that somehow uh, we have never had an opportunity to really hang out with, uh, even though we have many mutual friends and shared interests, and uh, and in this case, even from the same small town. And uh, and one of those guys for me is uh, Brian Husky. Uh, Brian, welcome to the February Room. Oh, Justin, thank you so much for having me. Man, it's good to hear your voice. What have you been up to, man? You're a, you're a photographer, a filmmaker, um, and you have your own podcast called Skylines, in which uh, you share uh, kind of your personal um, accounts and mishaps and misadventures uh, in the woods. So uh, I know you've got a, a good fishing story for us today. Yeah, you know, how much time do you have? Well, we got we got about 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, away. We're uh, on your time. 
Yeah, I probably have a, I probably have a couple of stories, and and um, it's fun to be here with you. It's fun to be talking with you. Thanks a lot for having me. And it is kind of crazy that we um, you know come from the same town and, and haven't had as much one on one encounter. So I'm glad that we get to connect like this. this is pretty cool. So yeah, me asked, too, man. You you asked me about um, some stories, and I kind of had to dig around for a while because I wanted to think of something original, something that. Um, that maybe I haven't written about or recorded um, on the Skylines podcast, because those are stories that are, I don't know that they're necessarily stories as much as they're, well, I, I, I don't know. They're almost poetic. I kind of write my storytelling based more on how I describe things than like, wow, that's a crazy story. Cause it's kind of funny. I was just joking with my wife, like um, I'm trying to think of some good stories. And it's like, I have all of these quote storytelling episodes yet like it's very rare that i come home and there's been like this huge thing that happened where i'm like oh my god you're not gonna believe what happened today um so i dug a little deeper and i actually opened up my uh photo albums to scroll through and go through the years to find something that like my pea brain just couldn't grasp on its own and I saw some photos from September of 2014. I was in Eastern Idaho, near the Montana border, hunting elk actually, during the September archery season. And I had made my way up a two track road that was very rough. I mean, it was uh, similar to the Arroyos of Baja or if anybody's been to Baja to see the, like those the massive erosion that happens in those canyons those desert landscapes where it's basically rocks and boulders and sand and so this super super bouldery canyon driving up it in four low getting up to where it broke over something of a horizon within the type V and lo and behold there's a reservoir and a creek that, well, of course there was a creek, but there was a reservoir that like was big enough to think like, wow, this looks like it could hold fish. And so as, as luck would have it, I happened to have some fly rods and fishing junk in my truck. And so I just had to take advantage of the opportunity and like make some casts. And so I go out and I start fishing this little reservoir and uh, there's cutthroat in it. And I'm having a heck of a time fishing cutthroat. And uh, after a little while, I'm looking up the creek, like I wanna go up further up this creek. So I drive my truck uh, up past the reservoir to a section of the road where it gets really nasty. And then I get to the point where I'm like, all right, this is just dumb to go any further. I'm gonna be better off on foot. And so, I'm, so I park and I jump off into the creek and fish my way up. And it's just one of those days that is beautiful. It was fun. I felt lucky. And, and, and frankly, like how many times has a person found themselves out fishing on a day when A, they were hunting <laughs> and B, they did not expect to even be anywhere near water, uh, much less water that had, you know, beautiful cutthroat. They're small, but they're, that's what small creek creeks usually have small fish so um a couple miles up a couple miles back down and i'm almost back down to where the truck is at and i see this just wild-eyed looking dude marching up the creek towards me 
with a rifle in his hand. <laughs> and he does not see me, but I see him. I stop and I hold perfectly still. And he's panting, he's stumbling, and he looks a little messed up. Behind him, there's another fellow looking equally as wild and kind of sketchy. And the first guy yells back to the second guy, Dude, I see it! He's right there! He's right there! And he's pointing and gesturing up into the canyon wall above me, not not far above me. Again, they don't see me. And they're like raising their rifles and looking through scopes and yelling about, there he is, Do can you shoot him? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I, I'm, I'm kind of reluctant and weighing whether or not I should announce my presence and say, uh, hi, hey guys, what's up? Uh, or whether I should just like try and duck and avoid. But I'm kind of pinned down with the way that they're headed, and so I kind of like splash along through the rocks and then pretend like I just looked up and saw them. And of course I'm in camo, yet I'm carrying a fly rod. Uh, and I'm like, hey, what's going on? They're like, cougar! Did you see the cougar? And I'm like, whoa, okay, all right, now I'm kind of putting some pieces together, like, okay, maybe this, this is making sense. They're like, yeah, cougar right there, you know, and they're gesturing like it's like right behind me, and now they're like looking like right at me, and to some degree, you know, waving their barrels kind of in my direction, referring to this cougar, but I'm like, okay, there certainly could be a cougar that's been very likely place and scenario that they could have seen a cougar run across the road as they described as they were driving up and then they were taking off chasing it on foot so I tactfully move my way away from the direction that they're assuming this cougar is at and get over to where I'm beside them so that I'm no longer in the direction that they're supposedly trying to shoot this cougar (laughs) And I get behind them, and then I pull out my camera, because I have my big backpack on with my camera on my hip belt. And I walk along behind them as they are, quote, stalking this supposed cougar. So I get behind them, and then I'm like, all right, cool. And I kind of let them advance, and I'm watching, assuming that they really had seen a cougar and that they really were actually seeing glimpses of it. And I'm like, this is kind of weird, because they're like, there it is, right there! And they're like, oh, he's the, oh, but it's like, I'm putting the pieces together that like, they're pointing at like 11 o'clock. There he is right there. And then like five seconds later, they're pointing at three o'clock. I I got him. I got him. I see him. I see him. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, this is not making sense. These guys are fully tweaking and they've got fingers on their triggers and they are, it's like, what, what's the movie where the, the peyote and the, the size of the chicken young guns. There it is. Yeah. I felt like I was in young guns <laughs> <laughs> and these guys are going to start opening fire in a culvert, <laughs> you know, that I'm in. And so I was able to like, basically like, back up and stop following them and then just like I turned around and trotted 
uh, as cougar-like as I could, meaning <laughs> <laughs> silently and quickly back to my truck. I get in my truck, I whip around, and then I go to go out. And then, of course, driving back out, well, I'm blocked in because they stopped right in the middle of the road. So here's this just clapped out Jeep Cherokee that is just stopped in the middle of the road with the doors still open. By by road, of course, I'm talking about what would be considered today, you know, an an ATV trail or whatever. Jeep trail, yeah. In In one of these just tight, super steep, you know, eastern Idaho Arroyos. And um, I thought about, like, what are my options here? Like, I really don't want to, I really don't want to ride this out any further. (laughs) And so I like my poor truck. I was like, all right, here we go. This is not a place that I would ever try and make a pass if, as if I was in a, a, a bike race or any kind of like driving or riding event. Like this is not a place to like go off of the road and around another vehicle. But I was slightly approaching panic mode and just like they're going to like think that I took their cougar or who knows how I'm going to quickly become the cougar. I'm just getting out of here. And so I just had to um, drive around their truck that was blocking the road through boulders and rocks and the banging and the crashing and the clanking. And when you get in anybody that's done much off-road driving, when you get into really, really gnarly situations, momentum is your friend and the size of trash can boulders um, and brush and logs that I had, and not to mention the side hill uh, without actually sliding into their truck. I was like, I I can't rock crawl through this. I've got to just send it. And I did. I just absolutely floored it to carry as as much momentum as I could to crash over the boulders and logs and through the brush and get around to their truck, drop back on down onto the road and then <laughs> exhale a huge sigh of relief um, down out of that Canyon past that reservoir and leaving nothing but a dust trail behind me. And maybe supposedly a set of cougar tracks. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, priceless, man. You never know um, who or what you're going to run into on the border of Wyoming and Idaho. Kind of along those lines, several years ago, um, some buddies and I were bow hunting elk, and uh, we were up near the panhandle of Idaho. And my buddy had shot a really nice bull. I killed a spike on the last day, and our other buddy was still out hunting. We'd been packing elk for two days, so we were just kind of done breaking down camp. and, And I decided to take the fly rod and go walk up this creek that was right by the camp and kind of the same deal it was loaded with cutthroat and um and they were eating october caddis and i was having a great time and and uh you know all of a sudden all hell breaks loose and just boom 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 right next to me this guy starts firing and uh and i'm like what in the hell and i'm kind of right by this little island and i kind of duck behind the island running for cover and i look up on the island and there's this big dead bull moose laying there and here comes this guy on the ATV, and and he yells at me. He's like, hey, can you come over here and grab my winch line and wrap it around that moose? Because I had waders on. And so I go over there, and, uh, and I grab the winch line. You know, not only did this guy just about kill me, now I'm helping him out. But uh, so I, I grab the winch line, and I go over and wrap it around the moose. 
and he had a tag, you know, he had drawn the tag and he was legit, um, as it turns out. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he'd been watching this moose. Like he showed up late at night, a rig rolled in and it happened to be him. So he's, he showed up late at night and, and put the hammer down on this bull. He pretty much knew where he was going to be, I, I guess. And so I helped the guy, you know, get the thing out back to his ATV and he just winches it, it loads it up, winches it back to his camp and then he's got this elaborate like system rigged up where he winches it up on this pole and i'm kind of helping him butcher the the moose for a while because i'd never seen a dead moose before which was pretty cool right and uh and so i end up going back to camp and and he got the whole thing butchered and in the morning he left me a couple of steaks and and headed out of there but uh yeah it was it was it was awesome but it was terrifying at the time i you know, it was just like he shot a 338 right next to me five times and just dinner plated this moose on this island that I was fishing. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. But, uh, well, anyway, man, um, so as I referenced, you're a, you're a photographer um, and, and you've made some really cool, some really cool films, too. The one that comes to, to mind for me is um, Doc of the Drakes, which was you know, a really neat human interest story. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that film and how that came to be? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I had started working doing content, media content and um, social media management for an outfitter in Sun Valley, Idaho called Silver Creek Outfitters. And uh, I had many dear friends that were guides that worked for Silver Creek. And one of those dear friends uh, was Pete Wood. And it so happened that the Brown Drakes were just coming off on Silver Creek. And that's just a big deal with a whole bunch of hype and the visual eye candy of seeing just hundreds of thousands of great big mayflies coming up off of a Spring Creek um, at dusk in June in Idaho is just absolute gold mine for anybody with a camera and anybody that just likes to watch beautiful things. And so he described that um, he was going to have a client with him that had access to some of the water that is not open to the public. Um, as we all know, as fishing guides, you know, some people have access that, that is privileged. And he also described that his client was a very elderly gentleman with Parkinson's disease. And his name was Doc. Everybody referred to him as the Doc. And um, I said, yeah, I would love to go along um, and, and picked up his invite to go fish with him and Doc. And so, um, yeah, beautiful things happened in front of the camera. That film to this day, I think, is very memorable. Not because anything that I did with the camera, um, not because anything I did in editing, Um I think that that story connected to people in such a way because it was a portrait of two people that frankly loved each other. Pete being one of the most loving, caring people you could ever imagine. And the doc being a man who was so in need of help and not hardly any fishing ability of his own yet after years and years as a very accomplished angler worldwide angler and traveler and and world-renowned surgeon parkinson's had taken all of that away from him 
And it was only because he had somebody like Pete, who was such a, as, as Doc described Pete, a natural born caregiver. And Pete would facilitate anything necessary for the Doc to be out on the water and fishing. As poorly as his fishing skills may have been, the two of those guys made magic together. And they had luck together on the water. Like Pete will tell you today that like none of his clients that were the greatest rods in actual fly fishing ability could compare to the type of fish that Pete and Doc would land together because Doc just had the magic. And anybody that's fished uh, more than twice is going to understand that a little bit of pixie dust, uh, a little bit of magic can absolutely turn a day of fishing into a tremendous success or an abysmal failure. Like, it doesn't matter how good you are if the mojo isn't right. And Doc just had the mojo. And so that story, I think, um, it captures a human element um, that I had nothing to do with, but the two of them just gushed with. The love between the two of them and the type of chemistry that they had with each other, but also with the fish, with the fish gods, you know, with the river and the waters. And not many people realize that there is a sequel to Dock of the Drakes. And unfortunately, it just never got the wind under its wings, as everybody now realizes in social media. If you don't get the right connections to share something or promote something, it just doesn't get off the ground. And it breaks my heart that Hit Him Again, Dock, which is the sequel, um, it never got that wind under its wings because it is a much more intimate look at the relationship between Pete and the Doc the year following Doc of the Drakes um, after Doc had had brain surgery and an electrical implant placed in his brain to reduce the shaking that the Parkinson's caused. And that, that video hit him again, Doc, um, which is absolutely worth Googling. I'll send you the link when we're done. So if you're on. Yeah, please, please do, man. I, I'm, I have not seen it myself, so I'm, uh, I'm guilty. It's, it it is a story. um, I, you know, I watched it this morning for the first time myself in a couple of years um, because I just wanted to have it fresh in my mind. Um, And it brings tears to my eyes every time I watch it. Anybody that has maybe seen Doc of the Drakes, um, they may have fought off tears, um, in that short film. Um, when I watch hit him again, doc, I mean, it's like, <laughs> I, I, I really can't fight off the tears because, and it's feel good tears. <laughs> so, um, so that, that, that's something that when it comes to, um, filmmaking and storytelling, um, I think is an example of why characters count more than content because my camera skills, 
my equipment level, my editing abilities, none of those things are any better than any person you'd pluck off the sidewalk. But when you happen to be fortunate enough to be around characters um, that have this type of love between them, um, it's, it's infectious and it drips success. Yeah, no doubt, man. And, uh, you know, I personally, I prefer um, that kind of format and, and, and that story that you captured. Um, it was, uh, it, it was so well done and, uh, and I did fight back tears and the ending's amazing. I'll go back and check out hit him again, doc. Cause I've not seen that, but, you know, as opposed to just the, the music video drone shot underwater, it's just, it, it's all the same stuff over and over again to me that I'm seeing now that a lot of folks put out there, nothing against that, but. Uh, personally, I am um, way more inclined to to tune into uh, to a human interest story such as such as that one you made. So nice job on that. Oh, well, thank you so much. It it, it definitely feels like uh, I, I I hate to use the word accomplishment because it's not really my accomplishment, but I, I I guess you know I do I do have some level of credit for it, and and to and, and to that it makes me feel like it is an accomplishment of a lifetime, um, just in the sense that I heard from so many people over the years since then. I mean, that was back in like 2012 or something like that, 2011. I don't know. That was a long time ago. But, um, you know, I just heard from so many people touching stories of how it connected them with maybe a person in their life or maybe a time in their life. It touched people. And I think as a creator, whether you're a filmmaker, a photographer, a storyteller, an artist, a poet, whatever, you know, touching people, connecting with people is the ultimate goal. And um, I feel like that was an effort that just achieved that so perfectly. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I lost my father in March after um, he had a long battle with dementia. Um, oh, so. Sorry. Yeah, thanks, man. So, you know, that uh, that story, that storyline especially um, hit home for me. And when I went back and watched it here recently, um, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, it was tough to hold back the tears, as you mentioned, for sure. Um, Well, so another thing that you've done um, is you started um, the Keep Them Wet campaign years ago. And I when I when this first came to my attention i i guess i didn't know that you were involved in it and then i kind of found out later i was like oh i'll be dang husky was part of that or um uh, i believe you started it right can you tell me a little bit about that yeah yeah absolutely that's that's another thing that's kind of like uh, like wow um uh, sometimes sparkly little thing just falls out of the sky and lands in your lap and, you, <laughs> and you're like it's like talking to the I'm still waiting for mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I hate to tell you this card off, but you may have had it laying in your lap and you didn't realize it. You just thought it was like a cigarette ash or something. <laughs> you might've just flipped it off, flipped it off your lap and kept going. I, I, highly likely. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Oh, a cherry on my lap. <laughs> you know, who knows? But, um, yeah, that's another thing that was kind of like uh, something happened to me. I, I really can't say that I ever in my wildest dreams had this aspiration where I'm like 
sitting there one day, you know, disgruntled about what I'm seeing on social media. And I'm like, I'm going to come up with a hashtag and I'm going to turn it into this campaign about educating people about the science of catch and release, you know, like, no, <laughs> no, that's, that's not at all what happened. It was merely a matter of it, indeed a frustration that I was observing as Instagram was like really starting to just rocket. And it was a realization of like fly fishing and um, cold water trout salmon steelhead are such just rich visually appealing eye candy to any audience you know you you, you can't you, th there's so much content of fishing that is so beautiful of fish and rivers and beautiful places and so many people that know nothing about angling are attracted and drawn into the sport the affliction <laughs> fly fishing because of what they see on social media and they see images of what the average grip and grin looks like and they think to themselves this is how you do it right and this is what it looks like and it's the industry standard this is what my feed is filled with um and so this is how i do it and you know frankly i just thought to myself like man there, there should be some explanation. There should be some context. If people would just keep fish wet, if they would just keep the fish in the water or hold them near the water, um, you know, you see pictures of so many fish that were up on the dry leaves and bank being bear hugged, hanging by their gills, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Hashtag catch and release. Right. So I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody that's like, Oh yeah, I love catch and release. You catch the fish, you do whatever you want to it, and then you throw it back in the river and it swims away happy, giving you a high five, and that's catch and release. Everybody wins. And it's like, how would somebody who doesn't know any better even question that that isn't just how it exactly how it works? So I had this uh, presentation that I had done for a local fly shop about trout photography and how I felt as a photographer. No, let me take that back. As an aspiring or accidental photographer, um, because I, I don't really claim that title with, with any um, deserving it at all. But um, at the time, people wanted to ask and, and hear about how I was, um, the things that I did for, for my photography of trout. And, you know, a big thing was like, if you're going to, catch a trout and you're going to release it and then you're going to take pictures of it too, then you are extending and prolonging, um, you know, the, the time that you're handling that fish. And so I always felt like I better be really careful with the way that I handle fish and I better set good examples. Um, so that was part of my presentations. And one of the bullet points of that presentation was keep them wet. So a couple years later, Instagram's blowing up. Every single angler on the water now has a smartphone with a camera and as, is adhering to the protocol of like, oh, if you're fly fishing, you take a picture of every single thing you catch. And thus, I thought to myself, I'm just going to like try and set a good example. Um, the best thing I could boil it down to if you're going to have catch and release practices is like, well, if you just keep the fish wet the whole time, that would help a lot. 
And I just scrunched that together um, and used a hashtag that said keep them wet. And then, of course, after I did it, I searched it. And there were a handful of pretty hilarious uh, <laughs> posts that did have <laughs> that did have a keep them wet hashtag at that time, but nothing too crazy. Uh, the one I remember the most was actually a garage of like Lamborghinis and Ferraris that had flooded. And there was like <laughs> $8 million worth of automobiles up to the, up to the windshield in, in water in a garage. But um so, yeah, so that's kind of where it started. And um, from that point, momentum really built. It, it, the phrase, the unforgettability of the phrase, and for anybody that was aware of what catch and release meant, the connotation of like, okay, if you're going to catch and release fish, keeping them wet. And it evolved to where um, people recognized it. And I came to realize that, this was turning into a movement that had potential to do real good. And so from that point, um, I knew that I needed to reach out to get the science behind it, that this wasn't just my personal ax to grind, that there's real science behind why fish handling matters. And, you know, if you're opposed to dams, if you're opposed to netting, if you're opposed to all of any number of threats to fisheries anywhere you live on earth, then you can imagine that like how many fish are being impacted by all of these different threats to fisheries. Um, is social media becoming one of those and is the way that we catch and release fish becoming one of those threats also? And like, why not just learn a little bit and try and promote a little education on the subject? And so that's really how it got off the ground. Right on. Yeah. Brian O'Keefe was on the podcast recently and, and he spoke to, you know, um, kind of the same thing um, as far as social media is concerned and um, and his opinion on it. Um, and uh, and it's right in line with yours. And you certainly have raised awareness for a lot of people, um, myself included. Um, I have definitely been guilty. Um, and, uh, you know, recently I read a book called Body of Water that was written by uh, Chris Dombrowski, the guy here from Missoula, um, in that book, uh, he described it's it's a book on the history of, of bone fishing and the first bone fish guide in the Bahamas. If you haven't read it, you should check it out. It's really well written. Great. Um, yeah, body of water. And in the book, he discusses catch and release bone fishing. If you take a bone fish out of the water, that uh, deteriorates this protective layer that they have on them that uh, that masks their scent from barracuda and sharks. Right. And I didn't know that. And, and you know, there's science that, that, uh, behind it that uh, says, you know, a, a fair percentage of those bonefish um, become fodder for those predators right after, you know, we release it and we're high-fiving our buddy. There's a there's a cuda or a shark that can now smell that fish. Um, yes. So, yeah, so there you go. You know, that, that got me thinking. I went back and looked at all my bonefish gripping grins going, oh, nice job, Jack Wagon. <laughs> we're all guilty of it i mean come on we're all guilty of it we can't like look at ourselves through you know rose colored glasses and be like oh i've never done that because we all have and so um yeah i get that uh i i share that same sentiment with a lot of the ways you know a lot of the pictures that i have myself and this just kind of inspired 
um, an awareness to that. And if nothing else, you know, maybe a few more people think about that too. And, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, for sure. You know, and if you've been, say it's July or whatever, and you know, the water temp's a little warmer and you've been fighting a particular fish for a while, maybe not take a picture of that one. Um, you know, the circumstances vary, but, uh, but it's definitely um, an important thing to to have in mind when you're handling fish and we're all out there um, catch and release fishing. Yeah. So it's one of the reasons why I prefer to fish for pike now. I don't have to worry about that. I bonk them, um, <laughs> cut them up, and eat them. <laughs> so Absolutely. <laughs> they're delicious. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Um, uh, your podcast, Skylines, tell me a little bit about that and um, – and how uh, how that began and where that stands now. You've put out quite a few episodes, I see. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really enjoy as as I've as I've told a lot of my friends and family. Like I really enjoy telling a recap of a trip, an adventure, whether it's hunting or fishing or mountain biking or whatever. I like telling stories once, and then it's like. <laughs> After you've told it once, you're kind of doing it a disservice if you tell it again and you don't have as much gusto and enthusiasm and detail the second, third, fourth, hundredth time you've told a story. And so it became I became aware of the fact that like I actually don't really consider myself a storyteller, um, but. I also don't consider myself an author and so because I'm, you know, not trained or formally educated in it in, in, in either, but like I have maybe a poetic mind, I have an, a, an appreciation for the type of writing and the type of, um, whether it's a book or whether it's spoken, a, a mix of storytelling and poetry and every year after my uh, various maybe hunting or fishing expeditions every season I would send out these emails of, of what had happened and, and kind of a recap and um, some of my emails started to get so long that I'm like scrolling through them and one morning I'm trying to read this back to my wife and she's in the bathroom next door to the, my office room here and I'm like reading this email and it's like going so long that I'm like who in their right mind is going to want to read an email this long you know, I, I had a list of, you know, 50, 60 people that I would send these updates to. I was on it. And, they, and, and I'd get positive feedback about the content. And I thought, you know, that's so much to try and read. Maybe I should just go ahead and record it. And then I can write even more. <laughs> <laughs> and then I can have fun with recording it and trying to because I'm a, I'm a horrible writer the way that I write like my, my run on sentences are three pages long and it's like I feel like trying to if, if somebody doesn't you, you know everybody has their own cadence and their own delivery in the ways that they speak and sometimes in print it just doesn't translate 
but I feel like in my head, that's the way it's rolling. It's kind of like, you know, reading the lyrics to a song and there are all kinds of songs out there that you could re you know, repeat in your own head and it makes perfect sense. But if you saw it in writing for the first time, you'd be trying to read this and be like, what is this mess? So, um, I started writing more and then giving myself license to go down these different rabbit holes that my head would trip on when I would be describing something, whether it was like, oh yeah, you know, I really remember as a little kid following deer tracks and looking close enough at the deer tracks that one time I found an arrowhead that was right next to a deer track that was barely sticking out of the ground. But I was looking so closely at this arrowhead or at this deer track that I found the arrowhead yeah, and, and, and analogies like that and um, different tangents were just fun and interesting for me to write about or describe. And so that's really what my podcast is. It's introspective in the sense of like, I think about what I'm doing when I'm hunting and fishing and I ask questions that are sometimes hard to answer and I explore those questions. Um, and I try and describe the things that I have experienced in the field as if the listener was reading a book and I want them to feel like they're looking over my shoulder. Yeah, it has a real book on tape feel. I've only listened to a couple episodes, but I'm getting ready to head out to Elk Camp here in a couple of weeks for a while, and um, I'm going to download a bunch of those. It's the it's the perfect um, the perfect setting, you know, when you're in the wall tent at night with the fire crackling um, to put on a hunting story. Um, and I really like your delivery on there. It, it really has a um, a feel like a book on tape to me. Oh, thank you so much. And that brings to mind, I will say one of my most cherished compliments came from a buddy who told me that listening to some of my podcast episodes is like listening to Metallica Black Album on the drive to go fishing. There you go. That's a good compliment. <laughs> <laughs> that's a compliment that I can connect with and think like, wow, that's really, really that's strong. Uh, an, an honor to hear somebody make that type of comparison. Well, right on, Brian. Uh, do you got one more fishing story for us before we check out here? Oh, yeah, sure. I, I'll, I'll tell you something that I learned this summer um, in what's become a transition for myself as a typical trout and steelhead bum, fly fishing bum. I have really transitioned into becoming much more of a uh, conventional tackle bass bubba. Nice. I am finding this journey fascinating and super, super fun to explore new waters, explore new species, exploring new tactics and tackle. Like it is just like an absolute amusement park. And the opportunities around me to go fish for bass um, and maybe not see a single other person as opposed to the opportunities to fish for trout or steelhead where, you know, you're going to be like taking a number to get in line. Right. So a really funny thing that happened this last summer in my uh, aspiration to be creative and to make the most of a, of a small slot 
hall pass. I've got a couple hours before dark and I've got maybe a couple hours of first light and that's about the size of my window. So I'm like, why don't I just take my tiny little boat and it is literally a tiny little Mirocraft, um, maybe 11 feet long and a little eight horse motor. And I thought to myself, I can put my cot in there and I'll bring a sleeping bag and I'm gonna buy pizza and a half rack of coldies and I'm gonna run out to my favorite bass fishing pond. I'm gonna fish till dark and then I'm gonna sleep on my boat anchored up. And then I'm gonna probably, you know, obviously fish at night as well in Idaho, that's legal. And fish till I'm tired, <laughs> fish from my sleeping bag. <laughs> what could be better? And then I'll wake up when, you know, as soon as I wake up and then I'm gonna fish again in the morning and then motor on out of there. Well, come dusk, you know, I'm familiar with being on uh, in a slough, in a wetland, in bass environments at sunset and the frogs are honking the crickets are going you know there's chucker up on the hill there's dragonflies buzzing around uh this happened to be in april or may so there were turkeys (laughs) gobbling and fluttering up to their roost there were all kinds of sounds and I'm like, wow, yeah, this is cool. And then it like, it gets dark and it's like fully dark. I'm still fishing and I'm listening to my popper chugging along. I'm excited for hearing that, you know, unmistakable sound of a bass crushing a popper and it gets louder and louder with all of these birds, all of these noises. And by midnight, I'm like ready to call it and I'm reeled up and laying down in my sleeping bag on my cot in my boat pretty still anchored up against the tulies and the geese start honking the ducks are quacking there are beavers smashing the water like a like somebody took a cooler lid and as hard as they could with both hands, smashed it like five feet away from where my pillow in my head is. I'm getting splashed by water because apparently where I had chosen to anchor my boat was right at an access point where beavers were coming in and out of the slough. <laughs> I, sp- I don't think I got a wink of sleep all night long because it was like just when you feel like you're lulled to sleep by the sound of all of like the other... You- all uh, you know the birds and the frogs and stuff that you can like kind of tolerate but then when somebody comes up and swats the water as hard as they can right next to your head and you get splashed I'm like Ugh! <laughs> it was so surprising to me and a realization that like you cannot sleep in a wetland at least I cannot and uh, <laughs> it was yeah one of the worst nights of sleep that I've ever had but also really funny to look back on and like amazing like Man, turkeys gobble all night long. <laughs> and geese honk all night long. And ducks quack all night long. And I even swear I heard like red-winged blackbirds doing their thing. And like bullfrogs. Oh my god, the croaking. It was unbearable to try and sleep through. And I didn't have like the balls to just like put in earplugs. 
and like just try and like close my eyes. I did have earplugs with me, but frankly, it was quite startling and scary that like I'm thinking like a beaver's gonna just like finally just jump up and crawl into my boat and you know bite me in the jugular. It could happen. You and you, so you unknowingly camped at a at a beaver bottleneck. You were, I knew it was precisely a beaver <laughs> bottleneck, as it turns out. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, hey man, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, check out Brian's podcast, Skylines. Um, you can follow him at uh, Fishbite Media, right? Yeah, Fishbite Media and uh, Skylines Adventure. Those are the kind of the two handles. Cool, and uh, and check out Doc of the Drakes and the sequel, uh, Hit Him Again, Doc. I'll be watching that here shortly, man. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.